Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, so we are going to be in the book of Acts. If you remember last week, we went over the Gospels, uh, so we're just going to continue on with our study of the Word. So the next book is Acts. Dan has already given me a very hard time this morning uh, because he, first thing he said this morning is, how in the world did you get one book? Yes, I told him it's because I just so happened to have my email open when Bryce sent out the email, and I just instantly, I replied fast enough that somehow I misspelled the word Acts. I was just typing it out like I'm grabbing that one. So uh, if you remember last time I was up here, we actually went over the wisdom literature, so Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. This one was a little bit easier to, for me especially, to prepare for. I love history, and that's pretty much what we'll be going over today. But on top of that, it's one book compared to all of the books. So before we get into it, we will go ahead and pray, and then we'll start. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a gracious and loving God to us, dear Lord. We just thank you for being a God that has revealed yourself to us through your word, and that through your word we can know you more, we can know uh, about life better. We just thank you for being a God that revealed yourself through the written word so we can continually come back to it. We don't have to rely on oral traditions, we don't have to rely on fuzzy feelings by some people. We can go straight to your word and understand what it is. I just pray that we would be Bereans, and anytime someone's standing up here behind either this podium or behind that pulpit, that we would um, lovingly follow along and then afterwards go back to our homes and study deeper so we can know more about you. We just thank you for Acts. We thank you for giving us a, a clear path of what the history of the church was. And you give us examples of how to run our churches even today through, your, through this book, dear Lord. We just thank you for the apostles, that they went from being men that were scattered after your crucifixion to men that were strengthened to the point of rejoicing in their persecutions, dear Lord. We just pray that we would also follow their examples in those ways. Again, we just thank you for being a loving God and just be with us throughout this time. In your name we do pray. Amen. All right, so the book of Acts. One of the things that uh, Bryce said initially whenever we started this class was that he wanted all of us to be able to open the Word and be in a book and know the basic premise of the book before we even get into actually studying the book. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up. Acts is going to be right after the Gospels. So it's the fifth book in the New Testament. I always forget that I have a PowerPoint. Before we get into the PowerPoint, and before we go any further because I'm going to give away the answers very quickly on your handout. Before we get into that, I wanted to ask, does anybody in this room have a specific story? Because we're going to be going over some stories through Acts, uh, but we're not going to be able to hit all of them. So does anybody in this room have a specific story that they really like from Acts? Kind of how I thought it would go. <laughs> anybody at all? Yes. When Jesus walked into the upper room? Anybody else have a story that they like from Acts? 
All right, one story. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so, one thing that I really love in life is, is history. History is by far one of my favorite subjects. I think I've said that almost every time I've been up behind this, uh, this podium here. I love history, and one of the reasons that I love history so much is that it actually shows that, the, that there is no coincidence whatsoever in God's planning. There's no coincidence in anything that God does. You can look at history, whether it be the history of the church or the history of our country or the history of the world in any standpoint, you can see the hand of God working through it. So before we get into Acts, I thought it'd be important for us to actually go back a little bit and go over where we've been up to this point. So if we go back to the book of Malachi, so we go back to the book of Malachi, does anyone remember how long of an empty period of God not speaking to his people? How long was that period? Does anyone remember? It was 400 years. So it was 400 years between when Malachi was written and when we see uh, the word speaking in, or the Lord speaking in the Gospels. One important thing to understand is that it's not like for those 400 years nothing was happening. The Lord wasn't involved in anything. He just backed off and let the things happen. So what we see actually happening within that 400 years is that the Persians would fall. So I'm going over big history here. So you have the Persian Empire, the Persians would fall, the Persians were the ones that allowed the the Jews go back to their homeland and rebuild. So the Persians would actually fall to the Greeks. The Greeks were led by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great would never see his empire fully, fully ran by him. He eventually dies, and it gets split up into a bunch of different groups, which weakens the Greek empire, which allows the Roman empire to rise up. When the Roman empire rises up, they basically take over everything that the Greeks had and then push even further. So... Um, the Romans had actually controlled the Holy Land for over 60 years by the time uh, that we get into Acts here. One amazing thing, whenever you think of the Persians falling, the Greeks coming in, setting, paving the way for the Romans to come in, the Romans coming in, taking over, the Romans brought in things to the world that had never been seen before. So one thing that you had was something called the Pax Romana. So anywhere that the Romans went into, they would take over and there would be a peace. It would be a peace strong enough that you knew that whenever you went into a neighboring country that was also controlled by the Romans that you weren't going to be walking into a war. You knew whenever you went into the next country that there was going to be just general rules of law. It wasn't going to be a lot of rebellions going on. The Romans were very brutal and crushing rebellions. So you knew that no matter where you went in the Roman Empire, it was going to be peace. You were going to be able to go into it and do what you needed to. The other thing that the Romans brought was Roman roads. So you knew that if you wanted to go from one city to another one, you're going to have not a paved, but a very, very nice road to go from one, ro- one city to another. The reason the Romans did that was to keep the Pax Romana. So they had these roads set up so if a rebellion started in a neighboring city, their army could march overnight to that city and be there almost instantly on those Roman roads. But that also allowed you to go from city to city very quickly, very efficiently. The final thing that you, we see that the Romans bring in is a common language. So anytime you went into any city within the Roman Empire, you're walking on that Roman road in peace to the next city. You knew when you got to that next city, if you had to do official business or if you wanted to be any part of official life within the city, you had to know either Latin or Greek. So you could walk in there and speak either Latin and Greek and know that almost everyone was going to be able to understand you. All those things, things seem kind of insignificant in the scheme of, of history and things like that. We think of like our roads today, the, you know, our roads are far superior to the Roman roads. But if we look at like the ancient times, this right here, this time that we'll be going over is the one time in ancient history 
where the word of God could spread in the way that it did. And that's not a coincidence. So the Lord comes back after four, or the Lord starts speaking to his people after 400 years. All these things are set up into place. Christ does his ministry. It's crucified, it's resurrected. We'll see that he's, he speaks to his apostles for 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension. And then the word starts spreading. And the word spreads like wildfire. And one of the big reasons that the word can spread like wildfire, it would have happened either way. The Lord's going to make it happen either way. But he made sure it happened in a time where Paul could walk from city to city in peace. He could walk from city to city on a road that was going to get him there almost instantly. And he could go into almost every single city and speak one language and spread the gospel. So that's one reason why I love history. Because you can see God's hand working through everything. I mean, you think of roads, it's insignificant. But it's not insignificant to the Lord because that's how he's going to spread his gospel quickly. So, I'm going to have the same structure that I did in the wisdom literature. And it's also the same structure that I'm still plagiarizing from Nate Van Cleef. So the first thing we're going to go over is the summary. So the summary of Acts is that it's the establishment and spread of the church. The book of Acts was written around 70 AD. The author was Luke. It's actually a continuation of the book of Luke, and we'll go over that here in a minute. And then the primary characters that we see within it are going to be Jesus. We'll see him at the beginning. You have the Holy Spirit, which plays obviously an integral part throughout the entire book. You have the apostles, and you have Saul, who will become Paul. And then also the primary character within the entire book is is the church itself. There's two primary themes throughout the entire book. You, you change who the focus is throughout, whether it be Peter or Philip or John or Paul. But the two primary connections to the entire thing are going to be the Holy Spirit and the church. So there's actually one book. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it. It's Acts. I think I'll have it up here on the screen. Yeah, Acts 1.8. So Acts 1.8 is actually a, a beautiful thesis of the entire book of Acts. We see in Acts 1.8 that the Lord says, this is actually Christ speaking, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the outline of our class, and it's going to be the outline of the entire book as you study it, is going to be those three primary regions. So the beginning of Acts, we're going to see that it's the spread of the church in Jerusalem, And then we're going to see it's going to be the spread of the church to Judea and Samaria. And it's going to be the spread of the church to the ends of the the world, as I knew it at the time. Any questions so far? All right. So let's get into the witness in Jerusalem. So at the beginning of uh, the book, it's actually the beginning of the church. We see that in chapters 1 through 2, verse 47. But before we get into that, it's important for us to understand that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. The way that we know that is actually in the first verses of both of those books. So in Luke 1, 4, or I'm sorry, Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, Insomuch as you have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitness and ministers of the word and delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So basically we see Luke writing that he's going to compile a list of, or a, a complete narrative of what happened in, when, in a Christ's ministry. Then we see in Acts 1, 1 through 3, in the first book, he's speaking of Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, so he's still writing to the same audience, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom have been, who had been chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days of speaking about the kingdom of God. So again, we have Luke being written to Theophilus. We also have Acts being written to Theophilus. Luke actually references the fact that he had written a book already. So this is, this is a sequel. This is a sequel to the book of Luke. So what we see at the beginning of Luke, or I'm sorry, the beginning of Acts, is that after the resurrection, Christ continues to appear and teach to the apostles for another 40 days. So Christ's resurrection, he appears to the apostles, and he continues to teach them. And that's where we get that, that uh, verse 8 that kind of gives a summary of what the entire book's going to be. He tells them what his, their mission's going to be. Their mission's going to be to go to Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria, and then also go to the ends of the, the earth and spread the gospel. They were going to do this through the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Christ actually tells them that he's, he's going to be leaving, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come and give them the ability to do these things. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit. It says that there was about 120 people at the time of this, and they were praying together and waiting for Jesus' command, waiting as Jesus commanded. They were gathered together at the day of Pentecost. And this, the day of Pentecost, we call Pentecost, whenever we think of Pentecost, we think of this event, but it's actually a festival that would have been celebrated. So what's interesting about that is Luke is a very precise person. I was texting Bryce, actually I think it was Friday, about teaching this class, and he brought up the fact that it's very hard to read Luke in Greek just because of the way that he structures things and the way that he writes things. The reason he's like that is because he's a doctor. We know that from some of the, the studies of Luke, but we know that Luke is a doctor. I also joked with Bryce that you know, even to this day, you can't understand doctors when they talk, so it's very hard. But he's a very detailed individual. So we give the details of how many people are in this room, but he also gives a detail of the fact that it was, it was Pentecost. We now use that, like I said, to kind of describe the coming of the Holy Spirit. We call it the day of Pentecost. However, this would have been the second festival, so that actually gives us a timeline. So we understand that Christ was um, arrested at Passover, and then the day of Pentecost would have happened, I believe it was five weeks after that. So we have a very detailed understanding of where we're at in an actual linear timeline. So the day of Pentecost comes, um, it would have been about 50 days after, or it would have been 50 days after Passover. So the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes to the apostles in the 120, and we see that they get this gift of, of speaking in tongues. We're not going to go into detail on that, but we see that they start speaking in tongues and into languages that were actually at uh, Jerusalem. We would have seen that Jews would have been coming from all over the place to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and they would have stayed over all the way to the day of Pentecost. So it was important to understand that whenever the apostles were struck with this, this gift of tongues, they were actually speaking known languages. So whenever they went out and they started speaking, they could speak to basically the entire Jewish world at that time because they were all in Jerusalem at this time. 
what we see is Peter actually gives a, his first sermon in chapter 2 in verses 14 through 41. It's a sermon that the main structure of the sermon is actually still used today. You give spiritual proofs from uh, the words. So he references Old Testament uh, prophecies and just Old Testament things that these Jews would have understood while he was preaching. And then uh, he uses these to explain what's happening to them, what's happening just with the Holy Spirit. He also, at the end of it, proclaims Christ as the Messiah and then also calls for them to uh, repent and be baptized. So the same structure that we would see in almost every sermon that Bryce gives in one way. You you structure it a little bit differently, but the overall content is still the same. So this is the structure that's still used within the church. We then see a series of events that leads to the spread of the gospel and the building of the church within Jerusalem. The first thing we see is that the lame beggar is healed. So this is all the the first eight, eight chapters, I believe it is. First seven chapters of the entire book of Acts happens just within Jerusalem. And that goes with that verse eight. That's what Christ was said they were going to do. They're going to spread the word within Jerusalem. So we see a series of events. The first event that we see is that uh, a lame beggar is healed. So there was, there was this lame beggar that's standing at, or sitting, laying at the, the temple through the same gate. He was so widely known that whenever this event happens, whenever he enters the temple, people within the temple knew exactly who he was. That's that lame beggar that's at this gate every day. So Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, heals this lame beggar, and then he gives a sermon about what was going on with it. And we see that in verse, or chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. After he is, heals this lame beggar and then also gives this sermon, it, it really upsets the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What's interesting about the Pharisees and Sadducees is both of them were upset about two different things. Pharisees were upset that they were preaching about Christ, who they just crucified. The Sadducees were upset that, they were, that Peter was preaching about Christ's resurrection because the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe, they believed that it ended when you died. And so the fact that they were preaching the that Peter's preaching that Christ was resurrected, that would mean that Christ had to have been somewhere while he was dead and coming back. But if there is no afterlife, then this can't be true. So the Sadducees were very upset in the fact that they were preaching a resurrection. So you have the Pharisees going after him for preaching about Christ. You have the uh, Sadducees upset about that. So Peter's arrested. Something interesting about that text is that whenever they were trying them, the lame beggar was actually standing next to Peter, and the, the big stumbling block for the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, we can't say a lot because the guy is standing right there. <laughs> it's kind of hard to say anything bad about him when a guy that we couldn't help is literally standing next to the people that helped them. But it's also important to understand that uh, Peter and John, neither one take credit for anything. And the entire time they are continually saying that this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is through God. So they don't take any credit for anything. The next event that we're going to focus on is, as we go a little bit further into the text, we have in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. I think many of you will be familiar with the story. You have Ananias and Sapphira who sell a plot of land. When they bring it to the apostles, they put it before the apostles' feet, Ananias. Based off the text, whenever you're reading the text, you can kind of understand that Ananias makes it sound like this is all the money that they got from this cell. So they put it at the apostles' feet. The apostle, or Peter is very aware that it's not all of the money, and he accuses them of lying. 
confronts him about it, and the Holy Spirit strikes him dead because he was lying. It's important to understand that it wasn't the fact that he didn't give all. It was the heart of which he gave it. So he gave it thinking that he could somehow trick the apostles and get the glory for, for giving them everything. When in actuality, they were holding something back. We can get a lot of lessons from that. When you back up a little bit from that story, we see that um, one of the members of the church at the time had actually done exactly what Ananias was claiming that he was doing, sold his land and gave everything to the church, gave everything to the apostles. So if we base what happened before this story and then this story, you can understand that what Ananias was doing was trying to riot off the glory of that last guy. The last guy was praised for giving up everything. And then we see Ananias acting like he was giving up everything, but not really. So he was just trying, he was in it for the, for the glory. He was in it for what it would mean for his name, not for the Lord's name. So Ananias goes in, tells him this. He's struck dead by the Holy Spirit. Sapphira comes in right behind him. Has no idea. I think it was three hours in between the two. Has no idea that Ananias had just died. Uh, Peter confronts Sapphira about it. Sapphira lies as well. And he, he actually says that the men that uh, had just taken your husband out or outside the tent right now. They're going to be taking you out too. She dies. Take him out. It seems, I've, I've talked to a few people about this story, either recently new believers or people that are outside the church. They always reference this one as how can God be so mean as to kill these two people instantly. What, what we see here, what's important for us to understand is this is actually the Holy Spirit protecting a young church. So the church is just now blossoming. The church is just now spreading. And you already have people trying to lie to the Holy Spirit and lie to the church, trying to get glory away from the church, trying to make themselves something big in the church when we're not supposed to be making ourselves big in the church. So the Holy Spirit is very stern here. Holy Spirit is very stern here and kills both of them to protect the church. That's how important it is at this time to protect the church. It's how important it is for us to protect the church. I'm not telling you to go out and kill people. What I'm saying is that it's important to protect the church. And we see that happening with the Holy Spirit here. The next event that happens is we have many signs and wonders done by the apostles. So we see a series of events where it gets to the point where the Holy Spirit is spreading so quickly and that the church is spreading so quickly that is Paul or Peter is walking down the street when his shadow is touching things, it's healing things. It's not Peter's power that's doing this. It's the Holy Spirit's power. And Peter makes this very, very apparent as he's speaking whenever he gives other sermons. He's eventually, the apostles eventually arrested for this in verse, or sorry, chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, the, the, or 5, 17 through 42. The apostles are arrested again. But this time, things get a little bit, after the first arrest, they were just released. There was no real big punishment. They were told to stop preaching about Christ. And Peter says, well, it's, it's right for me to preach. It's up to the God, not up to you. And so we see that uh, Peter and the apostles are arrested again. After the, It's obvious that this, this movement that's happening with the church is not going away, so the Pharisees are getting very threatened, just like they did with Christ. So they arrest him, put him on trial. This time, uh, they're told that they need to stop speaking about Christ, but they're actually beaten this time. So they're beaten and released. They go back to the church, and the church actually... And the apostles actually celebrate that they get to be persecuted in the same way that Christ was. So we see that there's actually a very different shift between this first arrest and the second arrest. It's going to lead us to what happens next. So eventually we have more spread of the church. Stephen is seized. He gives a beautiful, eloquent sermon after he's arrested. And actually it's the, I believe it is the longest 
speech in the entire book of Acts. He gives a speech, but is eventually martyred. He becomes the first martyr. We see that in chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. It's important to understand that as you're reading through the spread of the church in Jerusalem, we see that things are getting more and more tense. Things are getting more and more violent. So you have the first one, first arrest, they're released. Second arrest, they're beaten. Stephen's eventually captured or uh, seized and arrested, and he's actually martyred. But again, if we look back at kind of my intro there, nothing happens out of coincidence. Nothing happens without a reason when it comes to God. And what we see this do is it actually forces the church to spread. So they were getting comfortable. So whenever we look over these first seven chapters, you see that almost every time someone speaks, there's not just a few people that are converted or brought to the church. We see thousands. So after Peter's first speech, 3,000 come and join the church. 3,000 are saved. There's another reference to thousands after another speech. So it's thousands upon thousands are, are joining this church, but it's all in Jerusalem. So then the persecution starts, and what's that do? It's like throwing a stone into a pond. I think this analogy is used quite a bit, but it's like throwing a stone in the pond. You throw the stone in the pond, there's a very violent event that happens, but what happens after that violent event is ripples. And they just spread further and further. So that's what the Lord's doing here. He's using persecution of the church to make sure that his word and his church is spread. So Saul actually comes onto the scene during Stephen's stoning. He's holding the coats, he approves of it, and then he goes to the Pharisees and gets permission to start actually officially persecuting the church. He's introduced there at the beginning of chapter 8. After, I'm going to have to start speeding up. (laughs) After the church is persecuted within Jerusalem, we see that it spreads to Judea and Samaria. We see the witness to Samaria happening within chapter 8, verses 4 through 24. It says, after the, so after the church in Jerusalem was, a, was scattered by the persecution of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as well as Saul, we find that Philip finds his way to Samaria and began preaching the gospel. What's interesting about this event is, again, we see the Holy Spirit protecting his church. So Philip goes to Samaria, starts preaching. We see that many people are baptized, but it also states that the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon them yet. The reason for that is that the church in Jerusalem hears this, so uh, Peter and John are dispatched to go down to Samaria to meet Philip, and he goes down to Samaria to meet Philip to make sure that the the doctrine that they're receiving is, is sound, that they're truly coming to faith, and we see that whenever they get down there, they start laying on hands and start praying, and the Holy Spirit then strikes the Samaritans. So what we see is this is the first church that is touched outside of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's protecting it enough to make sure that the apostles go there to confirm everything before the Holy Spirit strikes. This is kind of a unique situation. It's not something that happens a lot. We'll see that this is probably one of the first, I think this is the only time that it happens within Acts. But it's another example, just like Ananias and Sapphira, where the Holy Spirit is very active in making sure that the church is sound as it's getting established. We also see that a huge, probably one of the most pivotal moments in the, in the church, and that's Saul becoming Paul. So on the road to Damascus, Saul gets a, a dispatch from the Pharisees allowing him to go and start persecuting the church in Damascus that was getting started in Damascus. So he's on the road to Damascus, he's traveling that way, and he, he's actually confronted by Jesus himself and asked, why, he, why are you persecuting me? Which is interesting because it shows how 
unseparable Christ is from the church because he doesn't say, or Paul is not actually going to Damascus to find Jesus, to persecute Jesus. He's going to Damascus to persecute the church. But the phrase that Jesus uses is, why are you persecuting me? So that's a direct connection between Christ and the church, and we cannot separate the two. So through a series of events, Paul, and I'm going to have to say a series of events throughout the rest of this class because I'm going to run out of time, but through a series of events, Paul or Saul does become Paul, and he's actually saved, and he becomes one of the most on-fire apostles for the entire church, spreads the gospel in ways that some of the other apostles won't or that we don't have written account of. And eventually the rest of this book will become about Saul or about Paul, the one that was persecuting the church. So we see that there's also a witness to Judea, which is what Christ said would happen. So Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea. So as persecution in Jerusalem increases, Peter goes to the coastal towns and begins to spread the gospel there. We see that in 931. And then he also receives a vision while he's out doing this spreading of the gospel. And he receives a vision that's probably one of the most important visions. So I'm probably going to guess the majority of the people in this room. But in this vision, he sees a great sheep being lowered from heaven. And it's all kinds of animals that were deemed unclean or common within Jewish law. However, he is told to kill and eat the animals. Peter responds, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. To which the Lord responds, what God has made clean, do not call common. What we see that happens after this is that Peter begins to preach to the Gentiles. It's a pivotal moment in the church. It's a pivotal moment for all of us. Up to this point, it was very questionable about whether or not the church was going to spread to the Gentiles or whether this was going to be just a, a sect off of the Jewish faith. What we see here is that the word was going to go to the Gentiles. We see in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand God shows no partiality, but in every nation, every, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him, as for the, the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news and peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witness of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to be and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets here bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
So what we see here is that the mission to the Gentiles has started. We'll eventually see that Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. But right now, Peter is the one preaching to them. Peter eventually reports to the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 11, 14 through 18, he will declare to you messages by which you will be saved and you all and, and all your household. So, sorry, I'm getting lost in my notes. One second. So we see that uh, there's actually a council that's, that takes place. I thought I wrote this down, but I don't think I have it in here. Peter reports. Yeah, so there's a council that happens. That basically, they, they have to decide what's going to happen with the Gentiles. So um, there was a sect within it that, that believed that you had to be circumcised that you had to obey the Jewish laws. And then there was a group primarily by the main apostles that that wasn't a requirement that had been gotten rid of. And so what they eventually decide on after this council is they decide that they're going to write a letter to the Gentile churches and explain to them that they need to abstain from certain things. So they need to abstain from eating food offered to idols. They need to uh, abstain from blood, yeah, food, or food that's strangled, and they need to abstain from blood. So the reason for that is that food that's strangled usually still has blood in it. So these were all things that they had to abstain from. And then all, the other thing was that they had to abstain from sexual immorality. So the first three would have been a connection to uh, some of the Old Testament laws. So that would appease the, the circumcision party. But it's also ones that are very important because it can also lead believers down a path that they don't need to go. So offering things to, or eating food that's offered to idols or false gods, um, that means that you're going to be somewhere within the vicinity of those things happening. So you're going to be tempted to possibly look at those things or join in with those things. So you just have to abstain from it completely. And then um, the sexual immorality one is the one that is universal. So it's not really a law. Uh, it is a Jewish law, but it's also a law that would be recognized by the Gentiles. I mean, even Gentiles would acknowledge that sexual immorality is, is a wrong thing to take part in. So next we see that the, wit uh, uh, the witness to the end of the world. Where we see that starting is in Paul's first missionary journey. That starts in verse, or chapter 13 and goes into 14, verse 28. Barnabas and, Saul, or Barnabas and Paul are sent out on their first missionary journey, and it starts in Antioch. Eventually they move to Cyprus, and from Cyprus they move to another city called Antioch. And that's on this, if you look at your outline, there's a, uh, a map of that first journey on the first page. And what's interesting about Paul's missionary journeys is we see a pattern that happens, and there's a distinct reason for the pattern to happen. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, however, he was also just trying to convert and bring whoever he can to Christ. So what he would do is, being a Pharisee, he would go into the synagogues first. He would go into the synagogue, start preaching the word, he would continually preach the word, continually preach about Christ until he was kicked out of the synagogue. The reason he would do that is if he would go to the Gentiles first, when he would enter a city, if he went to the Gentiles first, 
the Jews would not allow him into the synagogue. They would not allow him to go in and start preaching. So if you go to the synagogue first and start preaching, then you have a better chance of actually getting the word to the Jewish population within that city. So he would do that until he got kicked out, and then he would go and preach to the, the Gentiles. We have a distinct pattern of that happening throughout all of Paul's missionary journeys. So we see in uh, chapter 13, verses 13 through 48, that Paul's ministry actually starts to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, 46 and 47, it says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, since you trusted it aside and judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So speaking to the, the Jewish population first there. We are turn, turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, and you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. So Paul's, Paul's actual mission to the Gentiles happens here in his first missionary journey. After he leaves that second city of Antioch, we see that he enters into Iconium, I think is how you pronounce it. And this is where we see the pattern of going into the synagogues first starts and then going to the Gentiles. Then we see Paul and Barnabas moving into Lystra. And in that city is the, the interesting story about where he goes in, he starts healing, and they believe that he is actually a god. It would have been a Roman town. So they actually mistake them for, uh, I believe that Barnabas, they mistake for Zeus. And they believe that Paul is actually Hermes. They think that Paul is Hermes because he's the one actually bringing the message in. So Hermes was the messenger of the gods, if you know Greek, I think Greek and Roman mythology. So Hermes was the messenger of the gods. So they thought that Paul was actually Hermes come in the flesh because he was the one bringing the message to the people. And they have to shut that down pretty quickly. But it doesn't go well because Paul actually eventually here in this town gets stoned. So they drag him out of the city. This is mainly because the, the Jewish population follows him from city to city, trying to keep him from spreading the word. They eventually get to him in the city, rise, get a rebellion or a, a riot started. They drag him out of the city and they stone him. They leave him out there thinking that he's dead. Does anyone remember what we see Paul do? Exactly. He just rises up and walks right back into the city, which is astonishing. After that, we see that uh, Paul returns. I'm sorry, when Paul returns to the city after that, we see that he actually returns back to Antioch. And this is where we have that Jewish council. This is where I found it in my notes. So the Jewish council happens to determine if Gentiles had to become Jews, i.e. do the ceremonial laws to become Christians. And like I said, they agree that they need to abstain from food offered to idols, food with blood in it, and strangled meat. And I mentioned that those were like those Jewish laws, but the reason that they said that, that they made sure that the, the new Gentile converts understood that, is it would also actually keep a division from happening within the church. So instead of, it's not, it's not a sin to do these things, however, it's going to, to divide the church. Eventually, if we don't have the Gentiles abstain from these things, the Jewish converts are going to get upset about that and they're basically going to split off from the church and start their own church so then you're going to have these two paths you're going to have a gentile church and you're going to have a jewish church and that's not what we're called to do so 
much like we'll see Paul write in later letters, that it may not be sinful for you to do this, but is it healthy for you to do this? Is it right for you to do this? Is it going to cause another believer to stumble? So to keep that believer from stumbling, just stop. Just don't do it. You don't need this, this food to live, so just, just get away from it. Let's just unite together under Christ and not look at our divisions. After that council, we'll see Paul's second missionary journey starting. And the second missionary journey is where we're going to have some of our uh, letters written that we see Paul writing. I'm not going to get into them because we're going to have classes on that later. But there is a book. It's actually kind of written and designed for kids, but it's really useful. It's called God's Bible Timeline, the big book of biblical history. If you want to see it, you can come up afterwards. But I actually got it from Truth for Life, which is Alistair Begg's ministry. Um, it's really good. It has, all, it has timelines for almost every book of the Bible. It has timelines for almost everything through it. So if uh, you're interested in it, like I said, come up afterwards, and I'll show it to you. But it's really cool. But within that, you also see where the, the letters are actually written. So we have the second missionary journey happening. Paul decides to visit the churches that he had established first. However, it's kind of interesting because we see that he goes to these cities, but while he's in Asia, because most of his first missionary journey happened within Asia, we see that the Holy Spirit actually prevents him from speaking while he's in Asia. So the Holy Spirit's actually guiding him to where his missionary journey needs to go. So the Holy Spirit forbids him from speaking in Asia before receiving a vision that he actually needs to go to Macedonia. So the Holy Spirit's giving him a vision and requiring him by not allowing him to speak in Asia to go into Europe. So we see the gospel spreading into Europe after this point. We see that, that vision happening, just so you guys have reference, uh, in chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. We also see, as he's going on his missionary journey, that Paul casts out demons, resulting in, his, uh, resulting in him and Silas being arrested before an earthquake results in the doors being opened. That's a pretty familiar story to many of us, I'm sure. He's arrested, him and Silas are arrested, they're sitting in the jail. Eventually an earthquake happens, the jailer goes to kill himself, and Paul stops him from killing himself, and uh, tells him that all the prisoners are there. The doors are open, but all the prisoners are there. And eventually, he's led back to the uh, prison guard's home, where him and his entire household are saved and baptized. We then see that uh, Paul and Silas move to Thessalonica, and eventually to Berea, where we are introduced to the Bereans, which we're all called to be. We, we understand that the Bereans are special in the fact that they're given the word, they're, they're taught the word, but they never took it at face value. They always made sure to go back to the scriptures and check what Paul was, pre or, yeah, what Paul was preaching based off the scriptures, what, what we're called to do today. No offense to Bryce, I never think that Bryce is going to lead us astray. However, it's important for us to make sure that we keep Bryce on his toes. And the reason for that is because we're called to be Bereans. We need to be Bereans. What that also does is make sure that we're continually in the Word. I don't think we're going to find a whole lot of mistakes in, in Bryce's sermons. Still haven't found one. But it doesn't mean that I'm not going to go home and go back over his text. That's why we should be taking notes during sermons. That's why we should be preparing for the sermons beforehand. So that was the Berea. He eventually moves into Athens. And then Paul and Silas move to Corinth and then return to Antioch. I just pushed that button, didn't I? All right, so we're now into 
the end of Acts, which is Paul's third missionary journey. Paul starts his third missionary journey in Ephesus. I'm just going to breeze through these. And then he moves to Macedonia and Greece, and eventually journeys back to Jerusalem. And those last two missionary journeys are on the back page of your handout. And finally, at the end of Acts, it turns from Paul's missionary journeys to Paul's arrest. He's arrested in the temple. This is verse, or chapter 21, verses 27 through 36. And he's eventually put on trial and almost scourged. So they're about to beat him. And he looks, it's, I love the story because it kind of, it shows Paul had a sense of humor. It also shows Paul kind of had an attitude because he's about to get scourged. And he looks at the man that's about to do it. And he goes, is it right for you to scourge a Roman? And then they're like, oh, you can't do this to a Roman. And so then they realize that Paul is actually half Roman. So he has Roman citizenship. And one thing that came with Roman citizenship is the understanding that people that are not Roman cannot punish you. And then on top of that, you have the right to go before the emperor when you're charged of a crime. And so he eventually says, hey, I, and I want to go to the emperor. And so this leads him through uh, a council. He goes through multiple governors. So he goes through the governor Felix, and he also goes before Festus, which there's actually a lot of this whenever you're reading it, you think it's happening pretty quickly just because the way that it's written. It's actually two years between uh, Festus, or between Felix and Festus that he's arrested and waiting. And then eventually he goes to Agrippa, and then he is sent to Rome where we see the, the story of him being shipwrecked. And then eventually he arrives at Rome where we get many of the letters that are written to the church. Never wasted an opportunity. Even though he's in jail, he's not going to sulk. He starts writing to the church to make sure the church is strengthened, even from his jail cell. That's pretty much where Acts ends. We understand that, I mean, obviously Paul's not around anymore. Church history says that Paul and Peter were both caught up in a, uh, a purge of the Christian church within Rome. So I'm going outside of Acts here, but... Just so you guys have reference, Paul's is arrested. He sits on trial in, in Rome. What happens during this time period is that I think it's a third of the city, if not a half of the city of Rome is burnt to the ground. No one really knows how the fire started, but a lot of the attention was put onto the emperor. His name was Nero. The reason a lot of the attention was put on Nero is pretty quickly after the fire is done, he swoops in and takes over most of the prime real estate in Rome that had burnt to the ground and builds this huge temple, or not temple, this huge palace for himself. So a lot of people are looking at it like, well, that's kind of a coincidence that you get all the great real estate after it's all burnt to the ground. You build your own palace. So to keep the heat off of himself, he actually starts a rumor that uh, it was the Christians that started the fire. So as soon as the Romans get a hold of that, the persecution of the church starts. It's one of the worst persecutions here in the early church. And eventually, church history has it that Peter and Paul were both caught up in this persecution. Paul's eventually beheaded. Peter, famously, whether or not it's true or not, is, being, is told that he's going to be crucified. And whenever he finds out he's going to be crucified, they get ready to crucify him, and he begs them not to crucify him in the correct way. So standing up, he begs them to crucify him upside down because he didn't think that he was worthy to die in the same way that his Savior did. So eventually Peter would be, like I said, according to church history, that's extra biblical, so do your studying on it. But eventually it's believed that Peter is crucified upside down, and that's how they both end up. 
It's also interesting, me and Bryce recorded a podcast yesterday, and he mentioned some of the, the ways that the church deals with grief today and some of the wrong ways that, some ways that grief is dealt with. And one thing that's often overlooked in the church today is that, you know, the health, wealth, and prosperity stuff that we're, God just wants us to be healthy and wealthy and all that, which is, I'm getting off on a tangent, but it's interesting because that's all the things that Christ denied while he was in the desert being tempted by the devil, his health, wealth, and prosperity, and that's what's being peddled to many Christians today. But something that's overlooked often is the fact that there's only one apostle, only one apostle that is not martyred out of all of them. And it's not because they didn't try. Again, according to church history, they tried to, I think it was boil John to death, and he survived it. And they got so scared of the fact that he survived it that they, um, I almost said excommunicated, they sent him to Patmos, where he just lives out there. He writes revelations in Patmos, but he spends the rest of his life out there before he dies. So John's the only one that made it out. And he really didn't make it out. So what we see throughout the entire book of Acts is that one, God's in control. He's going to spread. I mean, he even kept Paul, who's known as one of the best speakers in our Bible, keeps Paul from speaking while he's in Asia so that his word will spread into Europe. We see that that God uses persecution of the church to spread his word. So when the church is thriving and on fire in Jerusalem. Persecution starts bearing down on them. The reason the persecution starts bearing down on them and martyrdom starts is so that the Christians will leave Jerusalem and spread his word, and it eventually does. So we see that trials and grief are not misplaced by God, and that, they, that it's in our lives so that his word will spread. So, any questions? All right, so something I did with the wisdom literature, something I want to do here is how can we apply this? It's great to have this knowledge up in our head. We really need to bridge that gap between the head and the heart. So how can we apply this? Why do we need to know about the book of Acts? I'm just going to leave this silence here until someone answers. So it's just going to get real awkward. History is important. It's important for us to understand the history of the church, especially. What's that? Yes, the paradigm of suffering and persecution will be changed. I'll piggyback off that. Even in persecution and suffering, the Lord's with us. He never once left the church. He actually strengthens the church. He goes out with the apostles to make sure that the church is spreading, that the church is protected. I think another way that we can apply this is to understand that that the Lord is very protective and jealous of his church. I mean, even Ananias and Sapphira are killed by the Holy Spirit because they were lying to the church, to God. He's very jealous and protective of himself and the church. That should bring us a lot of comfort. Anything else? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, so this is being recorded. So the other thing is uh, the way that the apostles in the church rejoiced in their suffering, that they didn't, woe is me, it. they went out actually, I mean, at the end of six, the end of six, I think it is, when Peter and John and the apostles are beaten after they're arrested, it says that they went out rejoicing that they got to suffer in the same way that the, the, their Savior suffered. We don't go out looking for this. I mean, we're not called to go out and try to get beaten up for the Lord. But, you know, it could happen. And if it does happen, we understand that nothing goes without the Lord seeing. So we take joy in all of our suffering. So, All right. I did actually decent on time. So we'll go ahead and pray and close this out. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we again come to you and we just thank you for being a God that allows us to even come to you in your name. We don't deserve this privilege. We don't earn this privilege. There's no way that we could gain this privilege apart from you. We just thank you that you have allowed us to do so. Just thank you again for the apostles, for their example. We just pray that if persecution and suffering come on to the church, as we see it happening throughout the rest of the world, that we would take joy in understanding that uh, to live as Christ and to die is gain. We just thank you that you have given us example after example of how to react to suffering, how to react to grief, how to react to trials and tribulations. We just thank you for, again, being a God that gave us that example through your word, that we can get into your word and just understand more and more about you and gain more and more for our lives to be patterned after you, dear Lord. And we just pray for Bryce today as he brings the word, that he would bring the word in a way that we can... Um, gain as much as we can to spread your kingdom, dear Lord, that it wouldn't be something that just stays in our head, that we would apply it to our lives and leave this place with a desire to spread your word. We just uh, also pray that we would be Bereans after the sermon, be able to understand that we are to, to dive deeper into your word, not take anything at surface level, that we are to check everything that we hear, weigh it against your scriptures, dear Lord. It's your name that we do pray. Amen. Amen.